0: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to talk with the host of the Slow Burn podcast, Joel Anderson, about a subject he has covered extensively, the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. But first, our favorite performances by musicians in movies. Absolutely, Greg. The Oscars are just around the
1: corner, and this business of uh, musicians on film is is a common one. Uh, From the beginning of popular music, we've seen musicians also taking a starring role on the silver screen, including Tupac, who we'll talk about later. It's only natural, I think, for a musician to branch out into film because so much of popular music is creating this persona, this larger-than-life persona on stage. It's already acting, and then so to take that in front of the cameras just makes sense. Think about Ziggy Stardust or Sasha Fierce or Janelle Monae's Arc Android. In acting roles, some artists even play a version of themselves, and that's usually a mixed bag about how well they do. I think when they're stretching what they are on stage into something different but related, that's when they're at their best. Anyway, we're each going to share four of our favorite performances, and Mr. Cott, you are up first.
0: Thank you, Jim. I am going to go right to the Queen of Soul. One of my first thoughts when we discussed this topic was, Her performance, if you can call it a performance, is really Aretha being Aretha. In
1: the Blues Brothers.
0: Exactly. One of the great musical movies of all time. It is. You know, you can't say a lot about the plot, okay? (laughs) What plot? Some of the comedy (laughs) is still really great. Some of it hasn't held up so well. But the musical performances in this movie are uh, altogether astounding and still are. What I appreciate most about the Blues Brothers, it was made in 1980, 40 years later, Mm -hmm. is that What a lift it gave to the careers of James Brown and Ray Charles and Cab Calloway and John Lee Hooker, who weren't really talked about much back then and ended up having great, you know, second or third careers after this movie came out because it, it put them in a new context for a new legion of listeners. Aretha, of course, benefited from that as well. Soon after, she ended up having a string of hits, getting back on the charts for the first time in like a decade. Um, and the other thing you got to point on is that uh, backing band of this uh, the, of oh, the Blues what, Brothers. proper okay? and Dunn. I mean, what a, what a group of guys. Matt Guitar Murphy. Matt Guitar Murphy, who happens to play the husband of Aretha Franklin <laughs> yeah. in this particular movie and gets a lot of what for from yeah. Aretha when the boys are putting... Let's get the band back together, man, and save the orphanage. Uh, Matt Guitar Murphy, great guitar player, is the guitar player in that band. He's working at this diner. And Aretha, the choreography essentially is her wagging her finger in her pink house slippers uh, at this guy (laughs) and saying, you better think before you make this decision, singing one of her most iconic songs. It's Aretha being Aretha. You know, sometimes she had the reputation of being a little remote. She's anything but remote in this performance. From the Blues Brothers, Aretha Franklin on Sound Opinions.
2: You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman. You better think.
0: That's Aretha Franklin with her role in the oh. Blues Brothers. <laughs> Truly memorable, Jim. Yeah, Aretha
1: is singing. Aretha is being Aretha. I'm going to turn for one of my first choices to two musicians who are not singing. It, it is not a musical performance, except they're perfect in it. It's a perfect movie. Let's face it. Who doesn't love the big Lebowski? <laughs> Joel and Ethan Cohen's amazing film. I uh, I was going to say about. How do you just say what, <laughs> what what The Big Lebowski is about? I don't know what it's about. It's just The Big Lebowski. It's in a category of its own. Uh, every single time I'm flipping on cable and it comes on, I get sucked in anew. must be a hundred times I'm up to now. But two musicians, uh, one of whom is a, is a friend of Sound Opinions frequently. She's been on the show. Amy Mann.
3: What so can you
1: plays Nihilist Woman and Flee. <laughs> the bassist from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, of course, plays Nihilist Number Two. <laughs> and what you have to understand is there's this gang of nihilists, uh, which are essentially like dour-faced punks who negate and hate everything. <laughs> Um, You know, who who plot this fake kidnapping of a very wealthy woman uh, in order to extort money from her husband. Amy is uh, so devoted to this cause as nihilist woman that she allows her uh, green nail-polished little toe to be amputated Mm. uh, as proof of life of this woman. Amy doesn't have a lot of lines in this movie, Greg, but there is a memorable scene uh, where she's sitting with her gang of nihilist pals in the diner after sacrificing her toe. And you can see that because the Mm. boot has been altered (laughs) to show us that the toe's missing.
4: Lincoln, buy a pancake.
1: The Picks and Blanket.
3: Für mich auch Heilbier Pfaff gucken. cooking. Pfaff gucken.
0: Ich wie Hersling und Burger Pancakes. man, wenn ich da an Pfaff gucken in Bremen denke. Ja, yeah, ja, yeah, was ist dann mit? Es ist
1: einfach besser, da richtige Butter dran. Nicht so ein Sch. And Flea is Flea. I, I'm not the world's biggest red hot chili peppers fan. Uh, Flea is the least egregious of the peppers Mm -hmm. in my opinion and then of course there's that that great scene with the nihilists fighting our hero uh, Jeff Bridges who is Lebowski and his buddy John Goodman poor Steve Buscemi I don't mean to have a spoiler here but God the film came out in 1998 he's just had a heart attack he's been scared to death you know Uh, and they're and they're going and doing battle with the nihilists and uh, Flea gets hit really hard in the gut um They're just perfect goons in a cartoon way that the Coens have perfected. Here's a little bit uh, of, of the nihilist gang in uh, The Big Lebowski. No,
3: without a hostage, there is no ransom. That's what ransom is. Those are the f-
2: rules. His girlfriend gave up her toll. She thought we'd been getting million dollars. It's not fair. Fair? Who's the f-
1: nihilist around here, you bunch of? Cry, baby. Is
0: there anybody who doesn't love the big Lebowski, Greg? <laughs> Remember, that movie was not universally loved when it came out, but I think it's grown from cult favorite to, like, universally now recognized as one of their best movies. Oh, so, from the very beginning yeah, of the I Coen's think it's careers, cool. I've, I've been a, it's, a huge fan. It's Joel
1: like, and Ethan, come on, sound yeah.
0: opinions and talk music with us. Totally, they, they get it. Um, I'm going to go to Tom Waits next as uh, one of my favorite musicians playing movie roles. <laughs> I mean, the issue with weights is which one do you pick? Because I I particularly loved his role as that alcoholic limo driver in uh, Robert Altman's Shortcuts, the way he plays off of Lily Tomlin in that movie. Mm. Uh, That pawn shop operator, a few lines in that uh, Book of Eli movie with Denzel Washington (laughs) that are just truly memorable. And there is a scene in this recent Robert Redford movie, I don't know if you've seen it, The Old Man and the Gun. Which is worth the, the the entire movie just by itself. Where I have not seen, that. waits just goes off for about three minutes, telling the story near the end of the movie. That's You're hilarious. a waits groupie, so we need to take this with a grain of salt. But I think his yeah true. Uh, but I think his uh, his best role, or at least the most memorable one, just in terms of wow, that's just like way out there because most of these characters are not uh, normalized people. You know, they are living on the fringes of society, in Francis Ford Coppola's. Bram Stoker's Dracula. (laughs) Waits plays a character named Renfield. And Renfield is his doctor, apparently an intellectual, who also happens to be insane. And he's living in an insane asylum, subsisting on meals of insects because he says, their blood gives me life. And uh, he's waiting for his master to arrive. His master, of course, is Dracula. So he's being studied by one Dr. Seward. Who is appropriately horrified not only by Renfield's diet but his words. And Renfield gets really worked up because he knows he's being played by Stewart. He's just kind of being treated as this weirdo uh, and builds and builds into this rage in this one scene that we're gonna play. Here is Tom Waits in the Francis Ford Coppola movie Bram Stoker's Dracula on Sound Opinions. A king,
2: I beg you. i little sneak. I'll play for Something I can teach, something I can feed. No one would refuse me a kitten. Wouldn't you prefer a cat? Oh. Oh, yes. Oh, big cat. My salvation depends upon it. Your salvation. I need lives. I need lives for the master. Master, what master? The master will come. And he has promised to make me immortal. How?
1: You know, Greg, Tom Waits, I'd forgotten he was even in that version of Dracula, which is not even my, like, sixth favorite version <laughs> of Dracula. That is a bad movie. I mean, all I remember is Keanu Reeves so surrounded all you need. <laughs> by the uh, trio or whatever of, mm-hmm. of vampires. That's it, me. What that's a bad movie. Yeah, there's a lot of
0: badness in it for sure. But, <laughs> but Waits again steals the show. You remember his his scene more than any anyone else's. All right, if you say so. Uh, I'm going to a
1: great filmmaker, Jim Jarmish, who has made astounding use of many great underground musicians, not household names, in all of his films. You know, uh, John Lurie, he's cast Tom Waits, members of the Wu-Tang Clan. Iggy Pop is in this uh, latest zombie movie, uh, The Dead Don't Die, that uh, Jarmish released last year. Uh, his first uh, film, uh, he cast Richard Edson, who at that time was best known as the drummer in mm-hmm. Sonic Youth. The first drummer, uh, Stranger Than Paradise, way back in 1983. I think that set the mode for Jarmusch putting great musicians in his movies in wonderful cameo character roles, but the best of all of them, I'm convinced, is Screamin' Jay Hawkins in 1989 in Mystery Train. You know, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, I think, is beloved by many fans of rock and roll, for I put a spell on you.
2: I put a spell on you
1: Because of my mine and then the vast majority of people, their knowledge drops off there. But Hawkins was always this super flamboyant character uh, with the cape and, and, and emerging from a coffin and the skull drain uh, right, right. in his hand, you know, way before uh, or concurrent with James Brown doing it. Um, and Hawkins, it, it was fascinating. I got to interview him once. Uh, and he was just he was just a riveting storyteller, <laughs> mm-hmm. a character larger than life. And here he plays a desk clerk who is uh, uh, manning the front desk of the hotel with a young bellboy, Sin K. Lee, and uh, they're kind of the comic connective thread of this whole uh, film, which is essentially a collection of vignettes Mm -hmm. of crazy things happening in this hotel where none of the rooms have a TV, but they each have uh, a portrait of Elvis, Hmm. right? Now, to say that Screaming Jay Hawkins steals the movie is saying something because another great musician's in here too, Joe Strummer, you know? But it's Hawkins' day.
4: I don't think you should eat that thing. Yeah, you're probably right.
2: You gonna eat it? No, I ain't gonna eat that thing.
3: Hey, my plum. All
1: right, granted. You know the dialogue is not amazing in that little clip. It's all about Hawkins's eyes. You know they are so wide, and he just—you're hypnotized by him.
0: Who knew he had a thing for plums? Now I know. You know. Now we know. What's your favorite performance by a musician in a film? I'm talking to you, our listeners. Call and leave a message on our hotline with your answer and why at 888-859-1800, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. After a break, Jim and I share more unforgettable turns by musicians in film. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions.
1: I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And with the 2020 Oscars rapidly approaching, we have got movies and acting on the brain. So, this week we are sharing some of our favorite performances by musicians in films.
0: Greg, you're up next. Yes, indeed, Jim. I want to highlight Ice Cube's role in uh, John Singleton's masterpiece, Boys in the Hood. I think it was just a revelatory movie when it came out in 1991 movie also had Cuba Gooding Jr. in it, Angela Bassett, Lawrence Fishburne, and Ice Cube as Darren Doughboy Baker. Mm. Essentially playing a version of himself, this kid growing up in South Central Los Angeles. A uh, heartbreaking and realistic portrait of life as it was played out in South Central during the late 80s and early 90s, young men growing up in this environment of gang warfare, drug dealing, you know, while trying to figure out how to become a man, how to yeah. grow into adulthood, how, what to is actually, honor? How, to, how to actually survive your quote-unquote childhood mm-hmm. and, and get to that point. There's a great scene at the very end of the movie where you start to see the human qualities of Ice Cube. You know, it, it, it's, I can't overstate how vilified Gangster rap in general was he back at that time. He brought to N.W.A. the immortal anthem "F the Police." Yeah, oh. and, and you know, the lyrically dense, detailed street reporting at the highest level made them an enemy of a lot of tastemakers in mainstream society. This was his first uh, major acting role. He was essentially playing a version of himself, and in the process, helped people understand what some of these young men were going through in that culture. The last scene is just absolutely heartbreaking where Ice Cube is talking to his cousin, Cuba Gooding Jr. after a night in which they had responded to a gang's violence with violence of their own and Ice Cube basically knows his time on earth is very short. Uh, His mother has essentially renounced him as well. So in addition to losing his brother, he felt he had lost his mother as well uh, in that sequence.
3: Either they don't know, don't show. I don't care about what's going on in the hood, man. All this foreign, they ain't have
2: shit on my brother, man.
3: I ain't got no brother. Got no mother neither. She loved that food more than she loved me.
0: Ice Cube with a very tender eulogy at the end of uh, Boys in the Hood. He's
1: truly amazing in that film, and Singleton's film is timeless, Greg, you're right. I've got a timeless film, and I bet you haven't seen it. This is a beyond cult Mm. favorite, a cult favorite foreign film. Dogs in Space, yeah. a 1986 movie directed by Richard Lowenstein. I've since uh, you know, researched, you know, what else did he ever do? And, and there's not much to talk about. Mm-hmm. The idea is that it's Melbourne, Australia, 1978, the height of the punk explosion. Not a lot of great Australian punk bands, a handful of them, you know, Radio Birdman and uh, The Saints, of course, uh, our Desert Island theme mm-hmm. artists. But here is this squat on the edge of town, where a bunch of bohemians and punks and a resident hippie are living rent-free, surviving on junk food, uh, old TV science fiction space horror films, drugs, a lot of drugs, Mm. and music. The band, of course, uh, is called Dogs in Space, and Michael Hutchins of In Excess is the lead singer. I always kind of liked In Excess in a just, like, just okay when they come on the radio. Hmm. Radio hit way, you know, funky kind of alt rock predecessor, right? You know, nothing exciting. But but he's great as the sort of vacant eyed, hmm. searching punk singer uh, who is in love with with this young woman. You know, there's a heroin overdose uh, that is really tragic and sad, underscoring. The dark underside of that punk bohemian moment. Uh, but there's also a lot of laughs along the way. Nothing much happens. Mm. It's a slice of life movie. There's a resident hippie in the house, Greg. Mm. And uh, you know that thing in college that uh, some boys would do? Put the tie on the door. They right, right. Having an amorous encounter. Um, they know that the hippie's uh, room is not to be uh, disturbed whenever he's playing at full volume. Brian Eno's Skysaw. Ding, ding. <laughs> Got to put a little of that in there. That's a recurring joke. But but this is a little bit of Hutchins as the leader of uh, the great band Dogs in Space. They're singing their hearts out because uh, they're high and also because there's this subplot that Skylab may come crashing to Earth at any moment in Australia on top of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you gotta watch dogs in space because the whole it's one of those movies that's so obscure the whole thing's on youtube you can watch it for free
0: yeah well that's got one of those songs where, where it's kind of bad you know it's mediocre at yes. best but you it's know it's supposed to be but and yeah it's funny in that way and uh, it ties in with uh my next choice which is from boogie nights the 1997 movie <laughs> uh paul thomas anderson you know yeah. started, that, that this is really the career start for him my uh critic friend Michael Wilmington reviewed the movie for the Chicago Tribune back in the day and he called it a perfect movie. There's not a single wasted scene in that movie. And it was remarkable because it really centered on the life of one Eddie Adams, otherwise known as Mark Wahlberg, otherwise known as Marky Mark, Marky Mark. who up to this point had been a punchline. He was a joke. He was he, in he, 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 Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. You some know? would
1: say he still is. He's yeah. making burgers,
0: right? Yeah. This kiddie rap group, somewhat popular in the early 90s. This is his first big starring role. Uh, What can Marky Mark be as an actor? Well, you're wondering, this movie was the answer. It was truly remarkable in a lot of ways in what it showed about the way Wahlberg could act. He's playing a porn star. He's running out of ops. He's kind of realizing he's trying to reinvent himself as a singer. And this scene <laughs> with his best buddy in the porn business, John C. <sighs> Riley, who who is also brilliant in this yep. movie, results in much unintentional hilarity, some of it drawn from the fact that the recording engineer in this session is one Michael Penn, who's rolling oh, yeah. his eyes through the whole thing. Riley and Wahlberg are super earnest. They think they have hit you know, <laughs> the gold mine here. They think this is going to catapult them to the top of the business in the same way that their roles in the porn movie Mm -hmm. catapulted them to the top of that business. So it's hilarious, but it's also somewhat sad. Uh, You know, you realize there's nothing these guys are really good at. You know, they're just desperately searching around for something, something to hang on to. And there's a poignance in that that Wahlberg gets at very well, and he goes on from this movie, you know, to do some pretty credible roles. He was in Three Kings and I Heart Huckabees. John C.
1: Riley, and Fighter, Mark Wahlberg, in yeah. The Perfect Storm.
0: Exactly. Martin Scorsese's The Departed. Mm. He got a nomination for an Oscar in them. Who would have thought that Mark an Wahlberg Oscar for Marky Mark? Yeah, I mean, would would have ended up there. Here is Mark Wahlberg with John C. Riley in Boogie Nights from 1997 on
2: Sound Opinions. You're nobody's fool. You're at your best when the gets You've been put to the test, but never You got to touch. You think the bass is taken away from the vocal? No, not really.
0: Maybe. It sounds balanced to me. It's definitely taken away from my vocal. Just to take the bass down and bring up the vocal.
5: Okay, let's do it, Nick. You heard him. You want to take
2: it from the top? Yeah, let's try it. And he again feel 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 my, feel my heat feel my heat yeah it's definitely cool let's lay it down nick you want to lay it down Are we rolling on the rehearsal
0: mark Wahlberg's trying desperately to stay on key in uh, boogie nights from 1997 I think it's just a great role.
1: That is is a movie, for (laughs) sure. Greg, I'm going to give you one more choice, and it's going to be a surprise, I think, to many listeners of Sound Opinions. They would not, I don't think, uh, peg me as a rom-com guy. And I'm not. I'm not. I I, I generally hate that genre. But there's a couple of films that uh, never fail to make me cry and also warm my heart. And one of those is Last Holiday, a 2006 movie starring Queen Latifah. It's one of those kind of up and down roller coaster emotional films. Latifah is an employee in the cookware department of a department store in New Orleans. And she dreams of being a chef, but nothing ever quite goes right in her life. and She doesn't have anybody. And she is uh, diagnosed with brain tumors from a super rare neurological disorder. And she's going to die. Right. This is tragic. But she decides to live in the moment to be here now. She sells all the possessions, uh, chucks her life behind, checks into the presidential suite in a luxury hotel and spa in the Czech Republic. I don't know why she goes to Czechoslovakia. <laughs>
0: you know, now, now, now I remember this movie. You remember this I movie? remember catching pieces of it. It had yeah. to be. They had to get yeah.
1: like a grant from the Czech Film yeah. Commission or something right. to set this in, in Czechoslovakia. And as with all the movies I've talked about, shenanigans ensue, okay? Misunderstandings and people uh, she wants to get even with. But of course she finds true love. All right. Who does she find true love with? I have no idea. Ladies love Cool James. Oh, my God. LL Cool J That's is in right. this movie, too, man. How can you not love I gotta, Latifah I gotta watch and this Cool now. James? And Latifah really is a great actress here. Cool J is, you know, he's Cool J. That's all he does. He's not bad. He's not bad. But Latifah stretches, um, you know, in this ability to play the pathos, but also be really relatable. It's not just a sad sack movie, it's an inspiring movie. Because she's, in the end, she doesn't die. She marries Cool J. Mm. They uh, open a restaurant. Emerald stops by. Emerald (laughs) Lagasse in New York. But but in, in the beginning, after she's gotten her diagnosis, she sings with the choir and she lets some of her emotion out. In church, you know, Latifah doing an incredible gospel performance. Oh, dear
2: Lord, why me? Why me, Lord? Why me, Lord? Lord, dear Lord, Lord, why me? Bless the Lord. Oh, no. Come on. No, no. come na
0: That is Queen Latifah from Last Holiday, Jim DeRigatis' pick for a great acting role by a musician That's an, in a movie. Her singing in church
1: is a nice bookend to Aretha Franklin, truly, where we started with truly. the Blues Brothers.
0: And Latifah is such a winning personality. Oh, you yeah. cannot help but like her you yeah. know, in whatever role. I, every time I've seen her in a movie, she's incredibly likable. Remember, if you have a favorite acting performance by a musician in a movie, give us a call at 888-859-1800. We've just given you our list. How about yours? And leave a message with your pick and why. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter as well. Coming up, we talk about the tragic lives of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. and how they shape the music world. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner, Jim DeRogatis. The Slate podcast, Slow Burn, reached the top of the iTunes charts with its uh, first season on the Watergate scandal and again with the second season on Bill Clinton's impeachment. And late last year, their third season also went viral. But this time the topic was different. Instead of methodically re-examining a presidential scandal, Slowburn broke down the feud that led to the deaths of rappers Tupac Shakur and the Notorious B.I.G. Greg, we both lived through uh, those tales as uh, both the
1: climb to the top by those artists and then the the tragic endings. Uh, I thought I knew a lot about Tupac and Biggie and what happened there, but even I, I was learning... A hundred things in every episode, which just sucked me in and kept me galvanized throughout. We spoke with Slowburn's Burn's season three host, Joel Anderson, about what he hoped to accomplish with a story that everybody would have thought was already really well known. And we started the conversation by asking him how he and his team decided what approach to take.
4: When we had our first conversations about working on Tupac and Biggie, you know, one of my concerns was, like, well, I didn't want this to be an autopsy. Hmm. You know, I didn't want it to be, like, a sensationalism where we just, you know, tried to find out who's responsible for the murders. Hmm. And and obviously that's not a topic that you can avoid, but I just was like, well, that's been done. And that's been done over and over again, whole miniseries, whole documentaries just on that topic, and I didn't Hmm. want to do that. I was like, but if we're going to talk about their lives and their contribution to music and the culture... Um, then this seems like exactly the sort of format that would lend itself well
0: to that. Well, set this up for us, Joel, because Tupac and Biggie were... I mean, you didn't have to go beyond those names. Just their first names were ubiquitous. You could not uh, not know who they were if you were alive in the 90s and paying any attention at all to popular culture. They happened to be East Coast, West Coast, and everybody heard about East Coast versus West Coast hip-hop in the 90s. So there were all these strains of baggage attached to these two huge cultural figures. Why were they so important in this era? Why did they rise out of the pack of all these hip-hop artists during that era to sort of become iconic?
4: I'll break it down one by one. So for Tupac, I think the thing is that he had, like, this irrepressible charm and charisma that made him just sort of hard to deny.
2: I see no changes. All I see is racist faces. Misplaced hate makes disgrace to racist. We under. I wonder what it takes to make this. One better place, let's see race to waste it. Take the evil out the people, they'll be acting right. Cause both black and white. It's smoke tonight. And the only time we chill is when we kill each other. It takes guilt to be real time to heal each other. And although it seems evident, we ain't ready to see a black president. Uh, it ain't a secret or no concealed seal, the fact that penitentiary's packed and it's filled with black.
4: Anybody that we've talked to that knew him personally, they will start to tear up. You know, there's like this really deep emotional attachment that people had with him, even if they didn't know him that long, even if they didn't even necessarily have like a great relationship. And it just sort of speaks to the power of like his personality and who he was. Because to be honest, I mean, no, Tupac was not, you know, one of the best rappers of all time, but he was one of the best performers of all time. Mm. And, you know, what a lot of people forget is that he was more famous as an actor than he was as a rapper at the very start of his career because he had a role in the movie Juice. He was a fully formed character from a very young age and like people were sort of drawn to him in that way. And so that helped him on his ascent. With Biggie, it's just really hard to deny A his talent, you know Rappers today still, you know, refer to his lyrics, use lines that he used, you know, 20, 20, 25 years ago.
3: It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Salt and pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rapper attack, Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke, the the you never thought that hip-hop would take it this far Now I'm in the limelight cause I ride tight Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade
4: He was that talented. I mean, a lot of that is because he was a good student in school. Like, it's funny to think of, like, wow, this rapper who, you know, his background origin story is that he was a street hustler in bed Brooklyn. But before that, he was a really good English student uh, in his private school. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he had a real gift for language at a time when, like, rap was still sort of a fledgling art. Like, it was, still, it was still sort of new to culture. It had not quite infiltrated the mainstream in the way that it had today. And so he was, like, one of those very first, just by force of talent, One of those people that demanded attention and then he also had you know this character this personality that people were sort of drawn to too and it's hard to deny like if you just watch video clips or hear him talking like he's just such a sort of a lovable dude and so it all kind of came out so like that's why i think those two guys stand out and why we still think of them because like they had everything that you would want if you were trying to build a
0: star Mm -hmm. their music also talks very much about issues that were pervasive in the African-American community at the time. For example, police brutality. I know uh, that there's an entire episode of Slow Burn that's uh, devoted to this unhealthy relationship that that community had with law enforcement in this country. And it was coming through in in the music of hip hop. Specifically, what was the relationship that the Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac Shakur had with the law community?
4: Well, I mean, for Tupac, it goes back even to before his birth. I mean, what's important to remember that his mother was a Black Panther in the 60s and was on trial for, you know, allegedly participating in a series of bombings across New York City. Right. Um, mm-hmm. in, the, in, in 1971. And so when Tupac, when his mother was pregnant, she was pregnant with him in jail. And so like that was <laughs> as you can imagine mm. that might have that might have informed a lot of his early perceptions of law enforcement.
2: When I scared to go home I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules.
4: You know, before his first album came out he you know went through an incident of what he you know, alleged was police abuse and uh, even successfully sued the Oakland Police Department for it. And so like all of this was the undercurrent of like police brutality, over policing of black and brown communities. Like that's all in his music, especially very early on, like his first three albums. Like right. he talks a lot about that you know you have to credit that to you know his black panther background
2: tired of being in this cycle. If one with but keep me cooped up in this and catch the Uzi. they got me
4: trapped with biggie uh, his relationship with the police is that they you know they hassled him because he was a dude you know uh, mm-hmm. selling drugs on the corner right um, but even then it's not like he's talking about it in a necessary political way, but he's talking about it in a very personal way, which isn't a way it's political.
3: Number eight, uh, never keep no weight on you. Them cats that squeeze your guns can hold jumps too. Number nine should have been number one to me. If you ain't getting back, stay the f for police. the huh If you think you're snitching, they ain't trying to listen. They be sitting in your kitchen, waiting to start.
4: He's like, I'm out in the corner, don't have a lot of other options, you know. he's uh, a high school dropout. Black communities, brown communities cut off from all sorts of opportunity. And this is the way that he saw to make money for himself. And the police were policing that neighborhood, over policing them in the way that we seem to understand a little bit better now than we did then. So, yeah, that was sort of his relationship with it. So, yeah, it comes up a lot. And in episode two, we talk about that, that how police sort of criminalized hip hop and hip hop lyrics, particularly even Tupac you know, because of that, because of, you know, the what they considered anti-police lyrics in their music.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think um, to some degree that, you know, Tupac is is a talented kid, went to art school, he's a great actor coming up. Biggie's, as you said, you know, excelling in English class, right? And there was rough stuff. They, they're part of the streets. They, there's poverty. There's everything the African-American community is fighting, right? But to some extent, when do you think they both start to believe they were gangsters instead of just rapping about gangsters they knew portraying things they saw because it, it kind of creeps in slowly as we listen to each episode it's like these guys are buying i mean they're, they're starting to think they're al capone they're starting to think they're mm-hmm. they're in the godfather
4: right right well you know so tupac had a very difficult upbringing right like i mean they were itinerant and you, you could even say homeless for times right sure. so like I would not say that he was a gangster, but he definitely was a street dude and was not unfamiliar with the ways of street dudes. And in fact, I mean, man, you know, one way into making it into hip hop too, as we talk about in podcasts, you know, your path to stardom, you got to have dudes around you, man. You know, mm. you got to have tough guys around you so people don't test you because you're going to clubs, you're going to, you know, performing in other cities. And you're a target, man. You might have some jewelry. You know, you're getting on stage. You know, you're talking to girls in this other town. And some dude might want to test you. And so you've got to have backup. you got to have some tough guys. you got to have some gutter dudes around you that are down to handle it. And so it's easy to see how you might get sort of subsumed into that world. Mm-hmm. And with Tupac, it actually happened a little bit later in his life, too. So, like, when he goes to prison for, you know, sexual abuse, gets bailed out and joins Death Row... Well, then he joins, you know, an organization that is like, you know, Mm. (laughs) essentially a subsidiary of the Bloods gang in in Los Angeles. Right. You know, Suge Knight, you know, grew up in a neighborhood that was affiliated with Bloods and they had a lot of Bloods that worked at the death row offices and people that Suge gave money to. And those are people that Tupac got close to. Slowly but surely, you could sort of see like more of the gang culture and like. For all the accusations that people made that Tupac was a gangster rapper, it doesn't really hold up until he gets out of prison Mm -hmm. in October 1995. And at that point, he's only going to live 11 more months, you know.
1: Well, and shortly thereafter, and this is kind of the heart of episode three, uh, when Tupac gets out of prison, you know. I had forgotten, despite reading uh, in-depth the great reporting that uh, people like Kevin Powell did, Dan Charnas, right? And all these are all voices that you have as part of Slow Burn. Mm-hmm. My God, the way they treated Faith Evans. Faith had been Biggie's wife. Uh, uh, Tupac Mm -hmm. decides, I'm going to get at Biggie by sleeping with his wife at a point where they're estranged. This woman is completely disrespected as an artist, as a human being. And, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes you think that some of the vocal critics of hip-hop at that point, C. Dolores Tucker, starts to rear her head. Uh, You know, they had some points, especially about the way women were being treated.
4: Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, the thing about C. Dolores Tucker is that nobody ever disputed that she had a point. I think it was just sort of her approach to it and the idea that she didn't think much of rap as an art at all. Sure.
3: Through the lyrics of rappers who display no respect for women, no respect for families, and little respect for themselves, the souls of our sisters are being destroyed, and so too their progeny all of us have watched as the industry have grown we have watched not really knowing not really understanding not first realizing the damage that is inherent in what some thought were merely words now we see the direct and indirect effects we see the rise in murders in abuse in batterings teen prostitution and teen suicide
4: she didn't make any distinctions between like a tribe called quest and the dog pound. No, it was all know? bad. Yeah, right. Which sort of, you know, undermined her criticism. But yeah, man, like if you go back to that time um, when Tupac is releasing the song hit him Up" and making like all these like wild, salacious, you know, over the top accusations about what he did with Biggie's wife.
2: First off, in the click you claim Westside when we ride, come equipped with game. You claim to be a player, but I your wife. We bust on bad boys.
4: You know, people just sort of wrote, not everybody wrote with it. There were people at the time that thought that was out of line, but just sort of looking back on it, it's just hard to grapple with the fact that, man, like, he really made that woman's life miserable. And it's not like Biggie, you know, defended her in public or anything, you know, it's not like he forcefully took a stand and said, this is out of line. You know, he even made a joke of it in a song that he did with um Jay Z. Yeah.
2: If they have probably have to separate the pros from the
4: It's really sad the way that she was treated. that was one thing like going back over all this information and doing all this new reporting. I was like, man, that that was something that we really wanted to drive home that any criticism that people would have made of the misogyny in hip-hop would have applied in that moment. It sticks right there, yeah. um, the way that they treated Faith Evans, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: And at the same time, uh, this music was becoming the mainstream, defining the mainstream. I mean, we had the NWA record debuting you know, way at the top of the charts as soon as SoundScan came into the play where they were actually measuring what people were actually buying at record stores instead of taking estimates. And lo and behold... We discover that hip-hop has got a huge hold on the youth of America starting in the early 90s, but probably well before that. And now we have the documentation. These two rappers are representative of this commercially, hugely popular art form. And so as a result, they were targets for so many different constituencies that didn't like this kind of music or didn't understand it. You mentioned C. Dolores Tucker, but what kind of a role... Mm -hmm did the sort of the social criticism that they went on or see Dolores Tucker, Calvin Butts, you know, it's kind of like a rehash of the Tipper Gore hearings of the 80s when they were going after people like Twisted Sister, you know, this was kind of another <laughs> right. level of that, you know. Um, what was the impact of that on this art form and, and how it, you know, uh, spoke to a part of the country that's going, yeah, they're right. This, this stuff is vile and should be banned.
4: Right. Well, for a moment, it put a lot of pressure on, on the music industry. Um, they'll, you know, Time Warner uh, had to respond to this criticism. I mean, you had, you know, the vice president at the time, Dan Quayle. It is wrong
5: for a powerful, influential corporation like Time Warner to make money off a record that says it's OK to kill cops.
4: The presumptive GOP presidential nominee in 1996, Bob Dole, Going on the record saying, hey, you know, this is vile music. This is, you know, C. Dolores Tucker called it pornography. And so it put a lot of pressure on these people. And Ice T had to have an album removed off the shelves mm-hmm, by the um, because Brothers. of this protest. Yeah. At that time, you could have it was sort of touch and go as to like, well, what's gonna happen here? You know, who's gonna who's gonna emerge the victor here? But I mean, as you can see today, I mean, obviously hip-hop <laughs> hip-hop won. And so what happened is that, you know, C. Dolores Tucker you know, they had these hearings on Capitol Hill. And then she gets into the, a board meeting with Time Warner and, you know, demands that Interscope get out of the rap business, right? And so what ends up happening is that Tom Warner sells off Interscope and Sony ends up buying Interscope. And today that collection of uh, music labels is like the largest, it has the largest share of music in the music industry, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So all it did was move things around It so it changed sort of the trajectory for certain companies or whatever, but you can't deny that their criticism of hip hop had some impact, but it, in the end they didn't win, but it did raise some, you know, and I think if you listen to the music today, I mean, there is some, you know, man, people are, you're kind of filthy on the mic even today mm-hmm. but if you go back and listen to some of that stuff and I've I've had to like listen to a lot of like you know west coast hip hop that I wasn't necessarily into in like 1994 or whatever and I was like man this is <laughs> this is some wild stuff man you know mm-hmm. the you know the way they're talking about women you know um mm-hmm. just like the the homophobia the misogyny in the music I'm not saying that that's not present in the music today but it was really wild and sort of out of <laughs> You could see why people would have had a problem with it at the time. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think people get wrong when they think about Tupac and Biggie today? I mean, what, you know, perception versus reality on on these two artists?
4: You know, sort of the idea that they're gangster rappers. You know, and that, that was something that kept coming up over and over again. Looking at the news coverage of uh, the Notorious B.I.G., like on the, the day he died, they called him a gangster rapper. Mm-hmm. And I was like... Man, he didn't rap about gang life. He wasn't, you know, a blood or a crip, and neither was Tupac. Although, you know, the, the case is a little stronger with him. The thing was that these were guys that were rapping about lives that they had led the lives of people that were close to them and the communities they were from and they were giving a voice to it you know in some cases yes they were associated or friendly with gangsters But to sum up their careers as gangster rappers and doing what they did as gangster rapping is really reductive. And, like, if there's anything that comes from this, I hope that people, like, sort of more seriously consider their place in the pantheon of American music and their role in, like, uh, advancing the culture of hip-hop. Because, I mean, they're right there. Right when hip-hop is, like, finally starting to make money and finally starting to get on the chart, those are the two dudes that are at the forefront and kind of helped build this multi-billion-dollar industry today that everybody gets paid off of. But it wasn't like that at the beginning. You know, Biggie was living, you know, with his moms in Brooklyn. You know, Tupac Mm -hmm. was homeless and had to, you know, do $7,000 jobs just to stay above water so he wasn't broke. So these guys deserve their due. They were not gangster rappers. They were so much more than that. Mm-hmm. I hope anybody that listens to the podcast, they, they would consider stop calling them gangster rappers going
1: forward. <laughs> no, I mean, there's so much uh, great observation and nuance. Born
3: center, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace to raw G, Brucey e, B, Kid Capri. Fuck, master flex, love, bug, star, ski. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. oh uh. yeah. And if you don't know, now you know.
1: Season three of Slow Burn is not about the mythology. It is about great journalism putting the music in context. A real accomplishment, Joel. You and your team uh, deserve congratulations.
4: Oh, man, that's that's major uh, coming from you guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that.
0: That wraps up our discussion, and now we want to hear from you. What did Tupac and Biggie mean in your life? Call us at 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are gonna dive deep on the legacy of King Crimson, 51 years of legendary progressive rock. For more sound opinions, listen to the
1: podcast wherever you find such things. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill.
2: You used to call me on my cell phone. Night when you need
1: my love. On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So, give us a call on our hotline, 888
2: 859 1800. I know when line New messages. I can
5: only one thing. My name is Bridget, and I'm calling from Gary, Indiana. We only, I only got to hear part of the show because of the impeachment, so I hope you'll replay that show with Mary Wilson. Also, we are losing a lot of our artists, especially off of Motown. I'd appreciate it if you could do an interview with Smokey Robinson. And also, too, it would be nice if you could get the the Jacksons to try to do an interview with them as well. And also, if any of the uh, Funknut brothers are still alive who did all of Motown records and playing background as musicians, it would be great if you had interviews with them. I really enjoyed that very much. I uh, hope you can do some more shows like that. Thanks for letting me give you my opinion. I appreciate it. Have a great night. Thank you. Hello, this is David from uh, Newport, Ritchie, Florida. He had just asked the question about favorite remembrances of the Motown era. I'm gonna do all the things for you A girl
2: wants a man to do Oh, baby
5: And mine would have to be high school When We took a band of ours that we were originally doing, uh, Beatles and Stones and all that stuff, and did a big switcheroo and got some horns in there, an all-white band to start with. And we got uh, four black Singers, local people in the area that were not really in our class or anything, but we formed up like a 15- or 16-piece band there. Won a lot of competition, battled the bands, they used to call them, in the uh, northern Baltimore County and the Hartford County area back in the late 60s, early 70s, always doing Temps, Four Tops, James Brown, uh, Little Stevie Wonder, uh, you name it. Very little uh, white music got in the repertoire after that, because we had such fun with it. But that's my fond remembrance of it and i'll never forget it thank you guys for what you're doing it's a great show bye-bye my name is leon i was listening to the show with uh, mary wilson and i did meet her in toronto anyhow she introduced herself as mary from the Supremes, and we talked a little bit and the name marvin gay came up at a time which i was impressed by it i think it's one of the most advanced song ever written for a movie that was Trouble Man.
2: Got me singing, yeah
5: And joined your show. Thank you so much. And keep up the good work. Bye. Hi, my name is Finn. And I live in Chicago now. But I grew up in the Detroit area. And I'm 65 years old. When I was in elementary school, way back in the early 60s, my friends and i used to go in my mom and dad's basement and act out the Supremes. i got to be his lead
1: <laughs>
5: i guess i've been a bossy in those days uh, anyway my favorite is stopping and him of love My claim to fame is I had a little friend whose mom, Mrs. DeRiker, taught Diana Ross charm school. I was so impressed with that. Thanks, Bye. No more messages.